you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. And we're going to begin reading in verse 9 in just a moment. The Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. And we will read verses 9 through 14 in just a moment. You may have heard someone say that they have sinned too much, too greatly, to be forgiven by God. If you've ever heard someone make that type of comment, that is not true. There is no sin or sinner beyond the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. It seems to me that over the course of the last 40 to 50 years, that the, the real danger that stands between the unbelieving, the, the sinner, and salvation isn't that, that they are too bad to be saved. The real danger is that far too often they think they are too good to be in need of a Savior or salvation. The parable we'll look at this morning is unique uh, to Luke's gospel, and he addresses that very issue. The parable seems to fit and occur and it's been told fairly late in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as Jesus began his ministry and as he continued it and as he would conclude that ministry, there was an ongoing fusillade of indictments of the Pharisees and their religious cronies. His ministry began with the warning found in Matthew 5.20. Except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Even after his final entrance into Jerusalem, he warned his disciples and the religious leaders with these words. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats and the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. In other words, there is an indictment of religious presumption uh, religious pretentiousness. This parable that we look at this morning is designed to puncture the self-righteous attitudes of the Pharisees and the rest of that particular religious community. It was a warning to the disciples, and I believe a warning to us of the temptations and the dangers of self-righteousness. We in the church love to look at those out there and complain and condemn while yet in and of ourselves still do something equally evil. And so the Pharisees failed to see themselves as sinners whose only hope was for a Savior. More specifically, their only hope was the Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. Their problem they thought they were too good to need a Savior. 
please know this. Everyone who would ever be saved must come to grips with their own sin before you can receive the gift of salvation. You must, first of all, be lost. And so read with me, beginning here in Luke 18, 9. As we look at the Pharisee and the tax collector, or what I call the proud Pharisee and the penitent publican. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pray with me, if you will. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your grace. And for those who have been born again, who have been converted, who have believed unto salvation, we have become convinced and we continue to be convinced that we indeed are sinners and that our greatest need, in fact the only need that really matters, is our need for a Savior. And so we thank you that because of your work in us, we laid hold of that salvation that you offer so freely in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to recognize, even within our own self, even at times as believers, the spirit of self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that uh, in this moment, if there's someone here that would trust in the fact that they are a, a church member or a church attender or a good person or any of these other things that would deceive us into thinking that indeed we have been born again. I pray that your spirit would work among us today, that we would believe unto salvation. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would think that this parable is familiar to most of you uh, here this morning. If you'll remember from last week, we looked at a, a parable, the persistent or the insistent widow, in which Jesus emphasized that uh, we must pray, we must pray continually, we must persevere in praying. And so while he continues to give attention, to instruct in regard to this issue of prayer, he illustrates how the wrong attitude of heart can render our prayers pointless. Previous point, last week, be persistent in your prayer life. Present point, today, 
Be penitent in your prayer life. Be broken before God as you come to that throne of grace with the boldness granted us through the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's certainly ample warning, Old and New Testament, that even the most uh, meticulous attention to every detail of religious practice without the accompanying inner attitude of brokenness before God is not only futile, it is an offense to God. It's a present danger to our soul. Isaiah wrote in this fashion in chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. In other words, you're going to church, you're doing church stuff, you're doing religious stuff, but your heart indeed is far away from me. As Jesus would pick up a quote from Isaiah and say it in this fashion, speaking of the people of his day, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, it's possible to be very religious, it's possible to be very churchy, and yet still be very lost. And so as we come to verse 9, we're told that Jesus is going to address this particular parable. His audience is described as some who trusted in themselves. Those that were a part of the religious community of Jesus' day. That would include the Pharisees. That would include the Sadducees. Maybe even possibly some Essenes and some religious and political zealots. And so kind of a mixed bag. You had the liberals. You had the conservatives. You had the ascetics. You had the warriors. You had all kinds of folks that Jesus was speaking to, but most likely, they all had in common the attitude that that which they had done and that which they were doing made them right before God. And so, who were these Pharisees? We mention them often. Let's be, be clear. They were a Jewish religious sect. They were popular. The Jewish historian describes, uh, Josephus describes them in this fashion. A certain sect of the Jews that appear more religious than others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. And so there was a certain element of admiration for these people. They were the uh, kind of the religious laity of uh, the, the times. They were even uh, somewhat heroes. Um, there is a group that may have been kind of a preliminary, a forerunner to uh, the Pharisees that appeared in the Babylonian captivity. But certainly by the Maccabean era, uh, there was kind of a formal group of lay people uh, that were conservative. They sought to preserve the integrity of that which God had revealed uh, through the Old Covenant. And so uh, there, was, there were things to admire about them. But even though conservative, and again, that stands in contrast to certainly the Sadducees who 
denied most anything having to do with the supernatural, including the resurrection of the dead. They were trying to conserve both religious Judaism and, and cultural Judaism, but there's always an inherent danger with any type of conservatism, whether it's Christian conservatism or whether it's political conservatism, that that which you conserve, that which you preserve and, and pass on, becomes only a faint facsimile of the original. In other words, they retain something of the look, something of the feel, something of the outward manifestations of Judaism, but they failed to preserve its purpose, the purpose being of directing the hearts of men towards God. And so, this group who Jesus describes, or Luke describes, as those who trusted in themselves, they represent basically one of two types of religion. There's only two types of religion in the entire world. All, all religions can be categorized under one or two or two headings. The first is uh, the religion of human accomplishment. That is, we can stand before God, we can be confident that we have pleased God by our own efforts of piety, morality, religious devotion, spirituality, altruism, humanitarianism, and sacrifice. I've been talking to some folks recently and they were asking about atheists. And I, I don't know any atheists by name. The, the last one that I ran across was when Jeff Dalton were out visiting folks in the neighborhood when we first came to, to this area. And so you're not really real likely to run across an atheist. You might, depending on what circles you run in. If you go down to UAB or somewhere, you probably find one. But what you will find, and you won't have to travel far, someone that will say something like this. Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not necessarily religious. Okay. Now, what are they doing? They're trusting in something. Now, now, now here's the thing. Everybody's trusting in something, even if that something is nothing. Okay? That everybody believes it's ultimately going to be okay with their souls, even if it's nothing. And so everybody's got something. I, I couldn't help as I was thinking through this this week. Now, nobody should consider themselves well-informed unless they've gotten the Thursday edition of the Somerville News. Okay? So I would encourage everyone to subscribe. Okay? Now... You'll get it about a week late, but, but other than that, it, it's, it's fine. But you've heard me make these remarks, and I don't mean to be catty. But I'm just telling you, at the point of death, everybody believes something, and everybody believes something about those that they love. Out of the obituaries from a few weeks back. This person was a spiritual person and a faithful believer in God. That's nice, but I'm not sure it gets the cigar of heaven if that's all that there is. Uh, another one, she was a Baptist. Now let me tell you something. It's a great thing to be a Baptist, but if that's all you got when you stand before God, bless your heart. And you know what bless your heart means, don't you? Okay? Um, another person. For many years... He was an avid member 
of Gathers Church in Covington, Georgia. And you read between the lines, he moved two hours away and never reattached himself to any type of local church, but he used to be. So that ought to be good enough. Um, another, she was a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, you've heard me, I've heard the, the line and, and the two that stick out in my mind, they were a Baptist by faith. Now what that means is nobody could ever remember them ever going to church. But if they ever decided to go to church, it would probably be a Baptist church because, you know, we're like kudzu. We're taking over. And then the other one, a man died, and his obituary said he had recently visited several churches around the county. Everybody is believing in something. Now, the question is this, and here's the thing. You can have great faith in something. You can be absolutely committed and devoted that that something will be good enough. But unless that something is Jesus Christ, you will indeed die and go to hell. The Jews of Jesus' day were trapped in a way of thinking that's sometimes described as nominal covenantalism. That, that is that they believed because they were inheritors of the traditions, that they were the physical descendants of Abraham, uh, that, that they were God's unique people, that they were in. They had practiced the particular rites. You, you, you see this attitude in Paul's testimony, that looking back, he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to legalistic righteousness faultless. And then he had to conclude what? I had to count all of that as dumb. I, that, that was absolutely worthless in comparison to the sure and certain knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's one type of religion. Again, it is man trusting on themselves, the accomplishment of man. What I have done, or maybe what I haven't done. How many times do we run around and go, well, I didn't, I didn't fill in the blank. But the only other type of religion is that of divine accomplishment. Now, I grew up in a church in which, you know, everybody's, you know, got little things in their church. Well, you don't say that. Like, like here, you don't say lucky, okay? That's a bad word, right? Y'all know that, okay? Well, when I was growing up, Christianity was not a religion. And the, the working definition was religion is man's attempt to reach God. Which what? At the end will always prove futile. Christianity is God's work to save men. That's an entirely different concept from religion. And there's only one quote-unquote religion of divine accomplishment, and that is biblical Christianity. It is distinct from everything else. God in His Son, Jesus Christ, has done everything that He demands for us. He has punished His Son, Jesus, on the cross for our sins. Jesus in His life on this earth has done everything that God demands of humanity. And it is given to us as a gift through faith. And you can see that to receive the gift of salvation, you have to let go of everything that you might be trusting in to attain for you the accepted status before God.
In fact, Jesus would say to those who trusted in themselves that there was more joy in heaven over one sinner who repenteth than 99 who righteous who did not need repentance. In other words, these supposed righteous people were actually lacking in true righteousness. So Jesus is going to speak to those that are religious, who know something about what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's good, but they do not know that indeed they are in need of salvation. And because of this self-righteousness, you see there in verse 9, they treated others with contempt. That is, they stuck out their chest in pride as to what they had done, what they hadn't done, who they were, and then they as we would say, look down their noses as those that were of, at those that were not a part of their group, that were, were not in that particular clique. And so they lacked love and compassion and kindness toward all of those who would bear the image of God. Where there is no love, there's actually hate, as Jesus would define it. So, so in saying this, they treated others with contempt. Jesus is saying... They hated those who bore the image of God because, again, they counted themselves as virtuous and everybody else as unvirtuous. They accepted those that were somewhat like them and condemned everyone else. And so he tells us this parable beginning in verse 10. And he introduces us to a couple of characters, one of them a Pharisee, one of them a publican, if you're like me, raised with King James. I don't know if it's still in the modern King James versions, but the tax collectors were called publicans, okay, uh, which is kind of a brought forward into English out of, uh, out of Latin. But here we have tax collectors and Pharisees. And so Jesus is going to use what in literature we would call irony because the, per- the normal person hearing this parable, Pharisee tax collector, Pharisee the good guy, tax collector the bad guy. And so... Jesus is going to turn their expectations on its head for the sake of puncturing this supposed self-righteousness. And so, we see uh, the Pharisees uh, represent uh, a person who is uh, self-righteous, and the corollary to their self-righteousness was that both the criticism and ultimate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it functions as do not adopt the mindset of these Pharisees. It is dangerous, it's destructive, it will end in your damnation. Now, the second character we see is the tax collector, King James, the publican. Part of the issue here is that at that time, and I don't know anybody that likes tax collectors or anybody, nobody likes IRS agents, okay? Uh, they're always kind of the, the nerds and geeks in school that couldn't get a job, do anything else, and so they become IRS agents. But um, these guys were thought of as traitors. They had basically aligned themselves with the hated Romans, and they agreed uh, to work, and they would agree to give to Rome so much money that they expected to get from a certain group of citizens, and anything that they could extort beyond that amount that Rome demanded was their profit. 
And so they were highly motivated to extort from their own fellow Jews exorbitant taxes, exorbitant amounts of money, and they often became rich. And they were hated and they were thought of as traitors. It's interesting that for the most part in the New Testament, the Pharisees are seen in a very poor light, but yet often the tax collectors are seen in a very positive light. In fact, as we continue into Luke's Gospel, what do we see? Well, there's a man named Zacchaeus who is a tax collector. And he, his real life story, here we have a parable, but his real life story of what it looks like for a sinner uh, to be converted. And so we have a parable in which there's two men. One of them is a Pharisee. One of them is a tax collector. And there are two prayers that Jesus uh, communicates to us. There, Look there in verse 11. His first words. He's standing by himself. In other words, I don't want to be tainted by anybody else. I'm certainly, I'm, I'm so pure that I don't need to be associated with anybody else. And then he prayed, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm, I am proud that I am not like other men. And he goes through a representative list of sins there. Extortioners. And again, that would have been an indictment of the tax collectors, that they extorted money from their fellow uh, Jews, that they're unjust, that, that, that what they did was unethical, and that they were adulterers, again, such as this particular tax collector. Sometimes in college they teach a, a course in comparative religion. That is, okay, this is what this religion teaches, this is what that religion teaches, we survey the literature. What the Pharisee was engaging in was not comparative religion, but the religion of comparison. He was looking with his own eyes at others and saying, I haven't done anything as bad as this group has done. In fact, I have done a great number of very good things. He was supremely confident that he was not like other men. If you'll remember, as we go on into Luke, there's another actual account. We call it oftentimes the account of the rich young ruler or the rich young man. And when Jesus begins to quiz him in regards to the law, do you remember what he says? All these I have kept from my youth. In other words, he had the attitude that he had performed enough under the terms of the law to be justified before God. In fact, this Pharisee in the parable, not only have I not done these things, look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, people will tell you, commentators will tell you, that's actually more than the law demands. Okay? He, he's going over and above the demands of the law. He, he, he is a, uh, we might even call him a Religious fanatic. He, 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 is, he is doing well in his own minds. He was supremely confident that he was not like the other men there. We have records of various prayers that the Pharisees would pray. One of them goes like this. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, 
that thou has assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit in street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah. They rise early to tend to the things of no importance. I weary myself, and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby, while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run, and they run. I run toward the life of the age to come. They run toward the pit of destruction. And so, he is extolling his religious virtue. He was thinking of himself as righteous because of what he did and because of what he did not do. Let's look at the second prayer there in verse 13 of the, by the second man, the tax collector. And you see the first word there in verse 13, but strong contrastive. There's going to be a big difference between how this tax collector is going to pray and how that Pharisee had prayed. And so he prays, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to me. And notice my translation has a sinner. It's actually a definite article there before the word sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. I am the greatest of all sinners, and I stand in the greatest of need. We got to talking this morning. Our, our young people went to an event last night, and it's kind of tragic that when you go to various events, you have to warn the kids you're taking, okay, you're going to hear some things in these events that, that we don't practice, we, do, we don't believe, and uh, you know, they had the whole nine yards of bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hands and pray after me and all of this mumbo-jumbo that at the end of the day does more to deceive than it does to bring people into uh, conversion, okay? And, and so if we're going to say anything about unbelievers praying, I guess we could say this is the real sinner's prayer, that, that to the degree that a person is penitent and repentant and they're broken before God, that is what we cry out. I think I said a few weeks ago that the prayer that should be on everybody's lips every day, all the time, believer or non-believer, is God be merciful to me, the sinner. And then you can pray a second prayer if you're a believer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, y'all are looking at me kind of spiritual. Like, no, I don't need to pray that second prayer. Trust me. You need to pray the second prayer too. Okay? Help my unbelief. What is sin? Did anybody sin this week? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to be embarrassed. Why did you sin? Unbelief. You believed the lie of sin. Okay? You disbelieved the promise of God. And so, we see here that, that this man turns his heart toward God. He's standing far off. He was aware of his own sins. He couldn't even look toward heaven. He was humble. He was convicted of the reality of his guilt before God. He's described as beating his breath. And here's the interesting thing. His prayer. God, be merciful. The Greek word behind this word merciful is the Greek Halasmos. And it's often used for what we call propitiation. It's a word that's associated 
with the cover of the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. That which the blood was sprinkled on, on the, the day of atonement, so that God would look down and see the demands of His own law, and yet see that the sins of the people of Israel were covered by the blood there on that mercy seat. A reminder of what? Not that the blood of bulls and goats could ever atone for sin, but that He would send His Son into our world, and one day He would die on the cross as the effective sacrifice, and that blood would be shed on the mercy seat that is in the heaven, the Holy of Holies in the heavens, and sin would be atoned for, that the wrath of God would be propitiated, would be satisfied. This man is, is saying something about the fact that he knows something about the truth of the holiness of God and that God's justice must be served and that God just can't weak at sin, that God must have an atoning sacrifice. He must have a propitiating sacrifice where the penalty is paid for sin. And so, God, would you consider me as one upon whom the blood has been shed and that my sins have been washed away. Your wrath has been satisfied. It has been propitiated. May the offering of blood be sufficient for my salvation. May both your justice be served, but your mercy be applied. May my sin be covered. May my guilt be removed. No one but those who have been broken by the powerful working of God's Holy Spirit can pray in such a fashion. In other words, instead of, look what I have done. I am proud of my accomplishments. God, I'm ashamed of who I am and what I have done. I need a Savior. Would you be merciful. Would you not give me justice? Would you not give me what, you, what I deserve? But would you be gracious towards me? We see there in verse 14, Jesus explains, I tell you, this man, which man? The tax collector, the unexpected hero of the story, so to speak. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. The other man, although he didn't know it, he was condemned. Because what? He trusted in himself, in his own accomplishments, on what he had done. So one leaves as forgiven, exhibiting the appropriate attitude towards God. And he is pronounced, look there at verse 14, he went down to his house, Justified, acquitted, forgiven for his sin. Pronounced not only not guilty, but righteous. While the other remained under condemnation. Jesus goes on to explain there in verse 14, kind of a general principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. But what did we see on the lips of the Pharisees? This is what I don't do. This is what I do do. In other words, when, when you stand before God one day, let me tell you what I did. And while I was doing that, I didn't do these things. 
If that is your hope for getting into heaven, you're lost. You're lost. You will be condemned. That you need to understand that the one who humbles himself is the one that will be exalted. The one that says, I have done nothing that is worthy of your salvation. I have done nothing to earn it. I have, done, I have done things in my life for which I should be justly condemned to an eternal hell. My only hope is that there's a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And all of my trust and all of my hope and all of my confidence has been placed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to show you this a little bit if I can by, by kind of biblical illustration. Go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I've shown you this passage many times over the years. I often speak of it as kind of a paradigm uh, for, for worship. And what you see here, and I think it, I think it is a paradigm for worship. Uh, and of course, Isaiah most likely was, was already converted, already following Christ, already called to the prophetic office. But when he encounters the holy, he recognizes the reality of his own sin. And so... When we see God rightly, now, two things. God must be revealed and comprehended. The only way He is revealed is through the proclamation of the Word. Why do we preach the Word? Because I like to hear myself talk and you do too. No. Because God has commanded preach the Word. This is the imperishable seed of the new birth. This is what you're to do when you gather and as the body of Christ is to proclaim this Word so that I may be revealed and I may be comprehended. And those who comprehend the Lord Jesus Christ are those and they're only those who have been born again. Who have been born of the Spirit of God. They're the only ones that can see this awesome and great display of the holiness of God revealed in the preached Word. And when they see something of the holiness of God, when they comprehend His holiness, if you follow the text here in Isaiah, you look down to verse 4 and 5, there's conviction and confession. In other words, yeah, you, if, if, you're, if you do not understand something of the holiness of God, you say, well, listen, I don't, I don't drink, and I don't do this, and I don't smoke, and I don't kick the dog, and I don't beat my wife, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I'm going to church, and I'm teaching a Sunday school class, and I'm a deacon, and I'm a preacher, and on and on it goes. But you encounter the holiness of God. And you will exclaim, I'm lost. I am coming apart at the seams. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, that's painful. Now, again, paradigm for worship. Revelation of God, comprehending revelation of God, recognition of my sin. That goes on in worship. And, and, and when we get to that point, nobody likes it because it hurts. It's painful. It is painful to be confronted with the holiness of God and it illuminates the reality of of your own sin. But thankfully, Isaiah's encounter doesn't end there. As he cries out, as the penitent tax collector did, Woe is me! God have mercy on me, the sinner. As he recognizes all of these things, we're told that a seraphim takes a, a tongue from the altar and takes a coal and places it on his mouth. And he says that your guilt is taken away 
and your sin is atoned for. There is consolation after conviction. After having your sinfulness exposed by the holiness of God, upon confessing, Woe, wretched man that I am, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then God in His grace in the gospel through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ comes to do what? To give consolation to your soul. He comes that, and, and you rest in that. In other words, the point is not to, to, to writhe and, 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 and fret and sweat over the reality of your sin. It is to go through the reality of your sin to the great accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know the power of His consolation and the reality of His redemption and reconciliation. And so, we see this, that, that before a person may be converted, they really must be lost. They must have a deep and abiding sense of the, the, the awfulness the sinfulness of their sin that only comes through this, this work of the Word and the Spirit, doing, taking that sword of the Spirit and dividing the joints and the marrow and doing this work by which sin is exposed. And you come to the same realization the tax collector came to. I need mercy. I, I need one to suffer and die in my place to receive the condemnation that I deserve. I need a Savior. Am I going to depend on a religion of my accomplishment? Or am I going to have a faith in the very accomplishment of God? Well, to be sure, most likely there were some Pharisees that did come to grips with their own sinfulness and and maybe we're even converted. There's a possibility both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were converted. And we know who? The Apostle Paul was converted when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't use this. And it, You know, I've told you a very popular verse in the culture. It's judge not lest you be judged. That seems to be the, you know, you can't say anything about anything. Don't, you know, you, you, can't, you can't say something, sin, something is wrong. Well, this is a popular place. You know, it's always, well, well, Jesus just hated organized religion. And everything, everything he said about organized religion was just bad. And, you know, that's why I can be spiritual. I don't have to be religious. Let me tell you something. This, this is not a blanket indictment of the reality of the necessity of assembling as God's people and visibly being the church of the living God and hearing the truth of the Word of God. It is an indictment of self-righteousness, of pretentiousness, of presumption. But it's not an indictment of the realities and the necessities of the place of the church of the living God and the activities of the living God in proclaiming His truth. And so, those that come before God, broken by the reality of their own sin, broken by the conviction that can only come from the testimony of God's holiness, apprehending, comprehending this great truth, the broken, and only the broken, are those that will be saved. They will legitimately and realistically cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner.
That is our only hope, the mercy of a God who justifies sinners like me and sinners like you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for the reality of the work of your Son, for what you do in our lives to expose both the sins of the unconverted and bringing them to salvation and the sins of the converted and bringing them to a, a constant and continuing state of repentance. Lord, may we all know that yes, indeed, we need that mercy. And may we all know that we have received that mercy through Christ our Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.